Hi ED Superfans, Matt here. You're probably listening to this podcast because you want to be at the cutting edge of sustainable business. And that's exactly why this episode is brought to you in association with E.ON. As the way we use energy changes, E.ON can help your business turn energy challenges into sustainable business opportunities. To find out more about how your business could benefit, visit eonenergy.com forward slash solutions. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast. Sweeter than sustainably sourced cocoa, more cutting edge than a Formula E racing car, and more enjoyable than a recyclable bag of crisps. Coming up on today's show, we create a successful energy strategy in 15 minutes with the help of our Energy Leaders Club. Success would be is not just um, implementing a good energy management system within sort of your own company, but then the influence actually spreads across to all your suppliers. We gaze into Eon's crystal ball to uncover the game-changing energy innovations of the future. And that's a significant move away from the old traditional model where we had very large power stations. Now, effectively, each of our business customers can have mini power stations on their sites. We explore ways to get more women into senior energy and sustainability professions with Renewable UK for International Women's Day. Women are just as qualified to be on the stages, it's just for some reason they're less visible, you know, they don't, perhaps they don't self-nominate, they don't have the confidence to, you know, be in a room where they don't feel included. We learn how sustainability professionals can use their work life to create low carbon homes. But at home it's also far more about health and air pollution is such a big issue, it's such a big worry for children in particular because they're so vulnerable. And we give you a very brief introduction to ED's newest team member. Yes, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. You're listening to ED's content editor Matt Mace and as you can probably already guess it has been an extremely busy couple of weeks for the ED team. So much so that we've had to change the script a little bit this week. Sarah is on annual leave, Uh, Luke is presumably still mourning George's departure and well George is now settling in at his new job which means I'm bringing you this podcast solo from our East Grinstead offices. So rather than try and dissect this week's big news and cover innovation and success stories I'm going to charge ahead with a whistle-stop tour of all of our interviews for this episode. Today, we're focusing on two topics, excellence in energy and International Women's Day. We'll be bringing you a total of seven exclusive interviews that will give you unparalleled insight as to what excellence in energy management, both commercially and domestically, looks like. Four of this week's episode speakers are women, one of which has spoken to our mystery new team member all about getting more women into energy jobs to mark International Women's Day. But that's something to look forward to. As first, we're off to our Energy Leaders Club, designed specifically for in-house energy managers and practitioners who are responsible for managing and reducing their organisation's energy. For those that don't know, we host exclusive networking events for the club throughout the year, and on the sidelines of our first event for 2019, we grabbed four delegates to ask them the following questions. What first steps can an energy manager make to create a successful energy strategy? What does effective staff engagement look like? And what does the future of energy management look like? So enjoy this 15-minute segment with our energy leaders and then join me for part two where we discuss the current state of energy innovation in the UK with our sponsors, E.ON. Brendan Rouse, I am the Sustainability Manager for the London Portfolio at Lansec. First steps. Uh, I think understand your your business and the market that you work within. Um, try and find uh, obviously people talk about the low hanging fruit and making sure that you get your your easy wins done nice and quick, and then you can move on to the the more complex stuff. Um, I mean, I'm very fortunate in the short time I've been at Landsec to take over a very well functioning energy management system. So it means that we can now look at the bigger picture issues such as. Uh, net zero carbon, how are we going to electrify our properties and try and 
get rid of as much combustion on site as possible. So yeah, I mean, just follow a nice strategic sort of process, get your low-hanging fruit out of the way, and then you can move on and start looking at the bigger picture and set your sort of longer-term horizons. Staff engagement. So I was taught a long time ago by a really good company to look at people's barriers and motivators. So uh, if you assess people, and this is very different for all different organisations, for all different roles, is, is what motivates people to, to, to act and what barriers are in the way of them from, from acting the way that you would like them to act. Um, and a great example that, uh, when I worked uh, in the NHS was we, we ran an energy management behaviour change campaign and we did not mention energy at all. Uh, we surveyed the staff beforehand and just talked about their jobs, their motivators and unsurprisingly it was all about the experience and uh, so it was the child first and always was the motto of the hospital and everything that people did was about making sick children better. So we devised an energy saving campaign about uh, using natural light to turning off lights and it was about how natural light helps people recover quicker. Um, closing doors, not because it stops wasted energy, but because it meant that their rooms weren't quieter, they sleep better, and it was about the experience. So just using that as an example of trying to find what motivates people to act and then working to break down the barriers uh, that, that stop them acting as you like. Where next? Yeah, I think if you're looking at a, a sort of a long 10-year thing, we're almost at 2030 then, and I think companies and, and, and property especially they really need to look at electrification. If we're aiming for net zero, um, how do we remove as much combustion off our sites as possible, take advantage of the fact that the grid is decarbonising and try to, yeah, I mean, the term is electrification of our buildings and that's what at Landsec, that's a real focus for us as we're looking at our next development pipeline. Um, and we, we don't want boilers, we don't want CHP, we want uh, heat pumps and electric heaters, etc. I'm Anna Ma from Sky. I'm an inspirational business manager for operations and environment. Um, I lead on a lot of sort of the environmental agenda and sustainability, um, and quite a lot of it is to do with the energy consumption, particularly on reducing our energy consumption for our sites and across Sky Group. First steps. I think one area in particular is to look at sort of your data um, and understand your data. Um, that in effect can actually tell you a lot of things um, and especially for us we constantly go back and check on our data and actually see what we can actually improve. The other would be um, to literally look at the current system um, and just to make simple small changes which is part of what we discussed today is so you don't have to be something really really big. It can be sort of small things you can look at, like LED lights or um, some uh, sort of small efficiencies can be done with the current system. Um, the simple things about um, are you turning off lights in your building, for example. It's, it's those small things you can trial first before you can actually go further from there. Staff engagement. It's really actually looking at from their point of view. So rather than coming at it with sort of the agenda that, oh, we have to reduce energy, you, we really need to actually understand on their point of view what their, their role is. Once we understand it, then it's actually a lot easier for them to actually come to your point of view that, for example, if their workers actually look at the efficiency of the energy um, and the fact that um, they are paying for energy and they're, they're the ones that are actually procuring for these energy. You're come at, coming at it from a point of view where you say procuring this could give them savings, could actually um, enhance sort of their roles and actually alleviate some of the issues they will have, but actually bring a much more sort of better conversations with them rather than say we have to implement energy efficiency measures, for example. Where next? For a company which you do have products and assets and services, um, I would see sort of in 10 years time the success would be is not just um, implementing a good energy management system within sort of your own company but then the influence actually spreads across to all your suppliers and your supplier actually having an environment uh, sort of the energy uh, step and management and agenda um, where I can see it's already happening now the suppliers are now seeing um, sort of the benefits that um, that it can bring by actually doing energy efficiency. I mean, it does bring financial savings. So um, having seen that, I think there will be further spread on this, especially if your suppliers are not within the UK that are spread around across overseas. So I'm Eva Genaku, Sustainability Director for Multiplex Construction Europe. 
first steps. I would say the first step could be to identify a change they've made, no matter how small, to the way they have used energy in, let's say, the last couple of years and calculate the financial benefits of this. Um, one case of, uh, say, cost saving or even overspend that they perhaps prevented can attract support from the business for developing an energy strategy. So, for example, our uh, sustainability department identified an annual saving of uh, 12,000 pounds by switching to LED lights on just one of our construction sites. But combining this saving with uh, switching to the right energy tariffs and to actually to renewable tariffs that have recently equalized in uh, price uh, with uh, the typical fossil fuel tariffs, we have um, successfully gotten support from the board and we got on board the uh, procurement department, commercial managers, our uh, plant and equipment branch, uh, so we have got, finally have got traction behind our energy strategy. Staff engagement. And the people are the most important part of the equation. So, in my view, what works is to show everyone the bigger picture. Talking to one person about switching the light off at night make, uh, make them feel that their action won't make a difference. However, if you run a switch-off campaign for one evening across the whole business, you can demonstrate the energy, carbon and cost saving of a collective effort. This will also become valuable information uh, in the long term for decision makers. For example, if the business decides to refurbish their office, they will uh, have learned to go with sensor lights, for example, if we focus on the lighting as an easy example because we all have to do with lighting as part of our energy strategy. Uh, so what we have done uh, in Multiplex is we have taken workforce engagement through campaigns uh, such as Earth Hour. Where next? I think that, um, as I said, the people are the most important element of the formula. Um, and there are some things for which we can take into account the people's, um, let's say, comfort but in an automated way where it's um, effortless, or effortless is the vision for this, in the sense that w I think technology will come to our rescue and uh, all these new smart systems, intelligent buildings, smart cities, uh, smart campuses will help automate and with um, the um, more widespread use of things like sensors, we will be able to focus back onto the end user when it comes to buildings, let's say, and focus back on what's important, which is their happiness through perhaps their thermal comfort. Uh, and the sensors, we will be able to pick up on that and adjust the energy that we consume to make sure thermal comfort is there automatically to match the various conditions, time of the day, um, outside weather conditions, and so on. So I think automation uh, is uh, the future. Uh, Richard Eaton, Energy Manager at Aggregate Industries. First steps. It depends obviously on the role of the energy manager, um, and that, that can vary from business to business, but um, you know, getting the procurement um, you know, nailed down um, and getting getting good deals um, on that is is important. Um, I'd say data, yeah, really, that's come out of, of today as being you know a really key one. It's it's something that we're on a journey with, but you can't um, you can't be doing all the the great projects around uh, innovation and energy efficiency if you don't have the tools to be able to, to measure that so it all comes down to monitoring and verification so if you can't say well this was our baseline and this was the impact of the project how are you going to be able to turn around to the board and say 
um, you know that that project was a success. So I would say that you know it's sometimes getting all that that housekeeping stuff right first, um, which then uh, frees up your time. Once that's all sort of in place, then you've got the the energy data system. You can go into a portal really quickly, and you can chop and you know uh, dissect data exactly how you want. Then you can start focusing on okay, right. Well, we need to be looking at you know electricity efficiency you know energy efficiency in this area it might be electricity it might be gas whatever um you need to have that that free time to do it and having those tools not just for you but for other people in the business as well because otherwise if you don't you're firefighting you're constantly asking answering questions sorry to from questions that you get from the business saying okay right well how can i work out what i used staff engagement um, I would say um, we don't ha currently have a sort of defined behavior change program. Um, what I would say and what, what I'm finding is, is driving some behavior change is an energy management system. Um, if you don't sort of have a formalized energy management system in place, certainly go about doing that. Um, you may or may not want to seek you know, certification for it. So obviously you could go for ISO 50001, um, which you know, it essentially you know, rubber stamps that as, as, as a good energy management system. But that, that brings about um, board level um, awareness of, of energy within the business, energy efficiency projects, etc., and and it starts to filter down, and it starts to go through your your next next level senior management, middle management, and down to to the site managers, and I'd say that's the first step on on behaviour change, and I would say that's probably you know, where where we are at the moment. Um, as as a sort of industrial um, business, we've got a lot of technological opportunities as well, but. I'm not ignoring the the behavioural change in our on our people, but we've got to take those first steps. Where next? You've got to have all of those elements of mm -hmm. you know you've got to have every piece of the the jigsaw um, there really in terms of what great energy management looks like. I think for for us um, some of the um, developments are going to be around demand side response um, and looking at engineering solutions that make some of our assets that currently aren't flexible um, flexible um, because you know we're moving you know towards and, and it's a good thing obviously towards more renewables on the system but inherently uh, difficult difficult to predict uh, generation so we have obviously a supply and uh, demand uh, potential imbalance but um, DSR certainly um, storage um, I would say um, you know we're going to probably see looking beyond just lithium-ion batteries. Um, we're, in, we're really interested in things like uh, flow batteries. Um, I think probably hydrogen has a big part to play in the future. Um, as, a, as a quarrying company, you know, we have large pieces of, of earth-moving equipment. Um, there are trials at the moment to try and make those equip, equipments uh, um, EV. Um, to essentially turning those into electric vehicles, but the other option is, is looking at hydrogen, and that might be um, a, a more, an easier solution to retro, you know, not to retrofit those pieces of equipment, but to look at hydrogen-powered equipment, um, because the problem with a with a battery is it's a, it's a heavy mm. item, and when you're already talking about very heavy pieces of machinery, moving big loads around a quarry, that extra battery could be a hindrance so i think hydrogen will um, will have its day as well so hello welcome back and a big thank you to uh, brandon from landsec anna from sky richard from aggregate industries and eva from multiplex hopefully you the listeners have gained some valuable strategic insight into strengthening your energy strategy uh, but if you want more, then part two of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast is bound to help. As mentioned, this episode is sponsored by E.ON, and rather than me outlining how they can help your business turn energy challenges into sustainable business opportunities, I'm going to ask them directly. So far this episode, we've spoken to a few <clears throat> of the individuals that are kind of redefining what it means to achieve excellence in relation to energy management. 
and use. But what of the companies and organizations that are, are very much in the front line in terms of creating uh, the pathways for this new area of energy consumption, um, whether that be end user businesses that have completely transformed how they use energy to the companies that offer the solutions. And that's why for our next guest, I am joined by uh, Eon's Senior Strategic Account Manager, John Walsh. Um, for those who have recently watched or listened to the vodcast episodes, he may be familiar. He's only appearing in audio format today. But um, John, thank you so much for welcoming me up to your London offices. No problem. Good to see you again, Matt. And this is a bit of a, a different setting in that sense. There's no kind of grand stage. Um, no other guests. It's just um, yourself and I in one of your boardrooms. And we're going to get right down into the kind of... Um, for leadership piece around what the okay. next era of energy sure. looks like. But I think before we kind of get there, it'd probably be a good point to start on Eon's own kind of transition in terms of its relationship with energy. Um, obviously, as one of the big six providers, you really turned into a kind of low carbon champion over the last um, few years or so. Um, and it'd just be good for our listeners to get a bit of insight as to how and when um, low carbon energy start to become a real priority for Eon. Yeah, well, th thanks for that intro, Matt. And, it, and it's great that we are recognised as such because um, that transition has happened over a, a, a long number of years now. Certainly, I've been with the company for 20 years and the rate of change in the last five or seven years has been really significant. Um, i can give you a couple of examples of those. It's really, our heritage is E.ON has been uh, around fossil fuels with a focus around carbon heavy solutions mm. and that's really where we we come from uh, as has the industries as a whole really so there's no denying that and it's really about where one moves to from that position and if we go back as far as 2013 i think there was a significant decision then by the eon board at the time to uh, abandon coal as we said and that's really the view that it wasn't uh, driven by uh, economies, there was still a profit to be made by burning coal to generate energy. It was just something we decided to do uh, the right thing and, and it gave an indication of where we were to transcend to as, as a business and where we are today. And really it was about a series of changes over, over a number of years. And that really came to a point in 2016 where we could, um, we could go out to market and actually advertised the fact that we had sold off our entire large-scale fossil fuel power stations uh, and again another significant step on the road to uh, sustainable focus of, of where we are today uh, you know those businesses again I stress were profitable and still out there for the right companies to 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 pursue but not right for Eon and for our our our, our path forward down this route uh, and it's the same with there's other businesses out there today that can look at you know combusting gas for peaking peaking plants but again it's 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 quite brave of eon to go out there and say that's not for us our, our choice is to pursue solar and battery storage solutions and that's the position we're in today and that's the way we we move forward and i think a culmination and a fact that i like to to share with our customers and with the market at large is really around the the past two years uh, 17 and 18 we've generated some 4 billion kilowatt hours of, of electricity so we're still generating significant amounts of electricity but we're we're, we're really pleased to say over 90 percent of that that power generation has come from renewable sources so i think if you move back and look at our heritage in terms of carbon heavy uh, fossil fuel to where we are now significant year-on-year -year performance uh, significant amounts of power generated from over 90% from renewable sources is, is quite a feat and something we're really proud of as a business uh, and as employees. It's um, one of the key things we're kind of getting from um, the discussions in this episode um, is something that I think has just been kind of connotated in, in what you said and it was a kind of brave to make that switch um, as early when you did champion stuff like renewables and energy storage when at the time people were perhaps still doubting whether they were um, market ready. Um, so that bravery is commendable and also something we're starting to see from end user businesses as well. And that's where I want to um, kind of take this conversation to for you to give 
for your own perspective, um, leaning on um, kind of case studies and touch points you've had at Eon to really equip our audience with, I suppose, the insight to become those and make those brave decisions um, in terms of transitioning to a low carbon economy. And I suppose we'll start with the kind of makeup of a, of a business. Um, in, in your opinion, is, is is energy, has it become a kind of holistic business agenda? Um, is it something that will become discussion points across other departments or is it still very much confined to the, the energy manager and what is a probably small team? I think that's a, it's a really interesting um view there Mark in terms of, of where we are as a business in terms of our our path that we've trod and really if we are to position ourselves as an energy expert and partner of choice hopefully for for this industry we need to you know talk the talk and walk the walk as well if you like so hopefully we, we've proven that in terms of the statistics we can share in, in, in what we've done year on year but more importantly it should put our customers at ease when they're facing similar positions and, and similar decisions rather in terms of way forward whether to just do the same thing as normal or to take that new challenge and to take that step forward uh, and I think it was something that came up when when we when we did the vodcast was really the the typical responses or, or the the challenges and issues that our customers face and what I hear when I sit with our large corporate clients or, or business customers is the fact that there's real challenges about investments, about capital availability, and there's also challenges about understanding the technologies that are out there, and a bit of reticence really about investing in those new areas or deemed new areas. And, and, and really what I see is an opportunity for EON or energy experts, whoever your third party is, to engage with customers address those fears you know let's not ignore them let's get them on the table let's thrash them out what mm. what are your concerns mr customer and how can we help and i think that approach is, has taken us to this partnership approach that we have with our clients and that can involve helping to provide capital or more importantly helping to underwrite some risks for the schemes underwrite performance of these uh, sophisticated you know energy assets We've gone, as I mentioned earlier, we've got a, a heritage of running and owning energy assets for, for years and years, decades. And to expect business customers to do that from, from nothing is quite a leap. So we feel that the best route is to, to work in partnership with our customers and assist them to do that. Great stuff. And from what we've heard from energy businesses, the, the energy sphere is is you see we're on the cusp of a revolution it's towards a tipping point basically sure. there's, there's, there's change that's going change, on yeah. um, big time and the kind of three areas that we at ED have seen where, where the most kind of discussion excitement and perhaps a little bit of that fear we, we've already touched on is appearing is is across the kind of areas of digitalization, democratization and decentralization so I, I suppose I'd like to spend the majority of this conversation just getting your thoughts on um, where what these three areas can can do for a business in terms of its energy strategy. So if we start with the digitalization, data management has, has become such a huge aspect. I was checking the on website earlier, and you have essentially real time data from from the wind power that you can um, generate, which is a great example. Already puts together any sure. alleviates any of those fears. But for for an uh, end user energy manager, uh, end user energy manager, what can data management do for their strategy? Yeah, well, the answer is, you know, it's it's infinitum in terms of the opportunities out there. You know, we, we turn on, it's not just energy. If we, we turn on any industry area, we're talking about the Internet of Things, the data storage, cloud storage, the availability of data now and the availability to be able to store data and then utilise it later has, has affected uh, all these industries and specifically with, 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 with energy what we can do is maybe reference an example from one of our from our customers so that's um, Marks and Spencers who we've, we've dealt with for a number of years and really data has helped them to deliver their plan plan A if you like which is the fact that they've got around 550 department stores and we've got a single data platform that we've helped them to consume uh, to help them to, to, to monitor and manage the consumption of energy at those sites. And that's through a 24-7 energy management centre service that we run from our offices in Glasgow. Uh, so that connects to things like lighting, HVAC, submetering, and really controls 
Um, but, but what we've done to really get to that next level is embedded some energy managers within stores. Uh, there's over 15 at regional level across the country. And we've also helped them uh, in terms of new innovative services like demand side response. And the key achievements on that, you know, to talk tangibly, is a 34% energy saving. Now that's got to be significant when we're looking at our customers, when we're talking to customers. Often a challenge we get is, oh, well, it's, it, you know, it's interesting, Mark, but it, I've got other priorities as a business. And when we're talking in the realms of, you know, a third of your variable costs could be affected by something like this, it's, it's important that we get to the point where this is not a plant room topic, but a boardroom mm. topic. And it really is a priority. And I've seen that change over the last 15, 20 years working in this industry. Typically now, if we go and see a client and we're talking about these sorts of opportunities, I'm dealing with FDs and MDs rather than just a, a plant room, mechanical focused, engineer type uh, employee. Uh, again, and, and the real response is it should be everyone's responsibility and the wider in terms of engagement we get across our, our customers and our partners, the better. In terms of the democratisation of energy in the UK that we're seeing, demand response seems to be um, a real exciting, I suppose, new system that, that businesses are, are looking at. For me, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but it does seem like one of the best kind of case studies of a of a, of a sustainability or at least a um, energy initiative that can easily attach a monetization value to it. So I'm guessing that the sell for that, if you're an energy manager, the board might be a bit easier, but, but what kind of impacts will demand response and democratization have in the UK? Again, some, some excellent points there, Matt. For me, what we're talking about is potentially a game changer. When I've had conversations, again, going back over the years, typically almost with a negative mindset, and that's because customers are facing increasing costs, significant charges, and now, when we're talking about things like innovative areas like demand response, where we can, key phrases like monetize their assets, you know, what does that mean? That means generating significant income streams. Mm. So we're actually flipping the conversation 180 degrees rather than, uh, you know, my, my, my contact at a business having go to the board and ask for further monies in, in, in tight environment they can actually go now with a good news story and something that they can share across their corporate sustainability reports it's something it, it almost changing the relationship with energy and that comes from a mindset approach as well there are uh, lots of opportunities that, that demand smart, demand side response gives us and it's really about seizing that opportunity, working with the right partners. Again, obviously, that's where, where I'm coming from. We can help our customers to make this leap. Innovators are the ones that are going to get in there early and get the most significant income um, offered opportunities that are there. And you mentioned the kind of changing face of energy. Um, Decentralisation is another big aspect of that, and I don't think we've ever had a conversation with an energy expert at ED and not kind of brought up energy storage. It's such an exciting concept for, for so many people. Um, the the potential is seemingly um, unrivaled in that sense, but the route to market is perhaps a bit different. Yeah, well, it, it is a significant opportunity, and again, the phrase game changer, and and we're not, if I'm, if I'm honest, we're not quite there in terms of marketable product for our business customers at the moment we're still in the innovative area and eon are leading the way in that route you know we've got a 10 megawatt battery storage in operation already in sheffield that came into uh, completion in september 2017 scheduled two months ahead uh, uh first one one of the first in the in the uk to go live at the time so Again, we are working very closely with these technologies, but what it offers in simple terms, as we're facing a more highly commoditized energy industry, what does that mean? That means prices are, are very significant at some points and other points in time very cheap. Polarization, if you like, in terms of energy cost. So what that enables you to, that makes the attractiveness of storage much more important and the business case much more attractive. So that means 
when we do get it right in terms of opening up this opportunity for our clients, you can actually store energy and procure energy when it's inexpensive or cheap and then utilize that or even send it back if we're doing demand side response at times of very high market costs. So you can imagine there are significant opportunities. And what drives it for me, these, what we're helping to do is decarbonize and decentralize the energy setup in the UK. And that's a significant move away from the old traditional model where we had very large power stations. Now, effectively, each of our business customers can have mini power stations on their sites. And what does that enable you to do? It gives you flexibility. And for flexibility, see opportunity for monetization. And in this marketplace, if you've got the right partners in place and the right advice, if you can run that asset well, you can derive a significant income stream. Thanks so much for that, John. It sounds like um, the the future is, is not far off in terms of energy management excellence and um, there's a lot of avenues to explore. Hopefully, EG can be on hand to provide our, our listeners and our readers with the tools um, to, to start gaining the insight and, and Ian, of course, will be on hand to actually help them deliver that. So, a big thank you to John and our sponsors, E.ON, for outlining the business opportunities around these exciting energy innovations. And to find out more about how your business could benefit visit eonenergy.com forward slash solutions. And that's it for part two. Join me after the break, where we turn our attention to International Women's Day with one of the most vocal advocates for women in energy. So, welcome back to the ED podcast. You are listening to ED's content editor, Matt Mace, broadcasting on Friday, 8th of March, 2019, which is also International Women's Day. This annual day dates back all the way to 1911 or 1909, if you consider the first ever National Women's Day in New York. The day acts as a much-needed focal point in the movement for women's rights, and it's fair to say that since the early 1900s, women's rights have come an incredibly long way. Unfortunately, our reporter Sarah George can't be here today, she's on annual leave, but she has published two great reads on the ED website outlining that even though 51% of the working force in sustainability are women, it's still largely viewed as a tick box exercise by too many corporates. In fact, in the energy sphere, this percentage drops even lower. Renewable UK's Executive Director, Emma Pinchbeck, has been one of the most influential women in this sector in terms of her willingness to use her voice to highlight this issue and for her organisation to kickstart a new programme designed to create change. And that's exactly where we're going for this next interview. And in fact, you're going to hear something you have never heard before. George may have left, but his shoes have already been filled, although not literally because his feet were freakishly big. James Everson is our new Insight Editor and joins us with a strong multimedia background, including roles at Innerpub and UBM. Uh, James will undoubtedly be introduced fully in future episodes, but as you'll see from his interview with Emma, he has already hit the ground running. So James, it's over to you for this interview with Renewable UK's Executive Director, Emma Pinchbeck. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the podcast, Emma. Um, So I understand that uh, Renewables UK have have done a lot in the past uh, in relation to international... Uh, Women's Day. Could you could you give me a little bit of an example of what you've done so far this week and, and what the plan is for Friday? Yeah, so we launched our big uh, commitment last year. So we have our own in-house events team and run lots of conferences and seminars and, and firmly believe that visible women are important in the sector and other um, minority groups too if we're going to improve diversity through the workforce because it's really important to be able to see you know yourself someone who looks like you someone who operates like you um, and diversity of thought in leadership teams and in kind of role models in the sector yeah um, on top of which it, we know that it's really good for executive teams for you know quality of debate to have as many ideas as possible in the room so so uh, Across all of our events, we've got a target that 30% of our speakers must be women. Um, and then we realised pretty early on, because we've got an event team, that targets all very well. But if you have no plan for delivering them, you don't get anywhere. So the big issue for our event team and for our events organisers and for 
you know, people wanting to find female role models in the sector, but they literally didn't know how to find them. So we launched an initiative this time last year to create a crowdsourced database of women who could self-nominate. So you can say what your current job title is, what your expertise is in, and we hold their contact details under GDPR or GDP for now, um, okay. so that people can find women, um, find what their expertise is and ask them to speak on panels or um, join boards or anything else. And this year, we've done a bit of review of what we've learned from that process. So we've got a kind of blog going up, we've got some thinking on um, last year's work and what it changed and where it worked and where it didn't. Um, some of our own organisational change and then we'll be doing a few webinars which look to, get, to bring together experienced women in the sector with women at the start of their careers and focus on really specific issues. Fantastic and so what kind of changes you've seen in, as a result of this in terms of um, how women kind of see themselves in the sector and, and, and what kind of um, attitude changes there been from, from having this switch list? The first thing to say is it was so well received. I think there's always... Historically, i found that there's nervousness about um, doing, you know, making explicit diversity commitments to be part of your business for one of two reasons. Firstly, no one wants a situation where people think you're doing it out of tokenism. Mm. Um, I myself am really allergic to being, you know, suspiciously the only woman on a panel and being asked to chair things or not speak at things where it's been obvious that someone has gone, oh no, um, we haven't got any women in the room. Um, and the second reason is that there is some misplaced nervousness about whether if you prioritise diversity over you know, other things like, say, seniority, you still get good quality debate and discussion. Um, and I say this place because what we found is that universally, where we've got, where we've made the effort to have more diverse panels, we've had livelier, more interesting, different points of view presented, and we've had really good feedback from all our conference attendees, from visiting delegations, um, from businesses we work with, that they're really delighted to see a change in how the industry presents itself um, and that comes as far apart you know from as far away as you know, I'm doing an event in Berlin next month on behalf of um, the British Embassy there because they specifically want us to talk about diversity as part of a conversation about the UK offshore wind market that mm. so really it was really positively received. I also said misplaced about um, the kind of view about, you know, quality is because we've generally found that the issue is that not that we can't get brilliantly qualified, interesting, articulate, knowledgeable women. Um, we don't have to sacrifice any of that to get women. Those, those, the women are just as qualified to be on the stages. It's just for some reason they're less visible. You know, they don't, perhaps they don't self-nominate they don't have the confidence to, you know, be in a room where they don't feel included or because no one's ever asked them. Um, lots of reasons like that. Um, and the last reason, which we should talk about some more, is that we still don't have enough women in our senior management positions and on board and in leadership positions. That's exactly what I was going to ask. What, what barriers do you think are in place in the energy sector in relation to getting more women into those senior positions? What, what's your view on that? How, how can that step change happen? So some of it is cultural, which is a lot of what we're trying to fix because that's the, you know, as a trade body that helps the industry set the tone for what it's all about, getting, you know, sorting out things like visibility and different ways of messaging and, and conference speakers and all that stuff is our job. But the other thing is, is to ask whether any of it is structural in terms of how we work. Um, so a few things. Firstly, we find it much harder to get uh, diverse candidates um, and especially women to speak on heavily STEM-based subjects. So, you know, uh, in engineering or um, in really kind of traditional bits of the supply chain, we find fewer women in general. 
Um, and a lot of that has to do with education choices that happen when people are 16 years old. So we can't fix it on our own. And it's the same issue that's faced by many other sectors. We don't get, we don't have equal numbers of girls and boys taking STEM subjects through to A-level and then through to university. So we don't get the same number of candidates in the workforce. That's so a smaller pool to draw from. Um, as an industry, I think we're doing all we can to work with higher education institutes to look at, make sure we're setting targets for diversity and things like our apprenticeship, trying to, you know, encourage that as much as we can, but it's a, it's a much wider conversation. So that's the, the first one. In terms of what we control as businesses when we've got the workforce, it's all the stuff that we hear talked about all the time. It's working practices, things like flexibility, things like maternity and paternity leave, um, things like... Um, encouraging different kinds of leadership um, behaviours so that we get the broadest possible sense of what a leader looks like and operates like, um, and making sure that we are identifying talent early in people's careers and, and with mentoring, with um, matching between levels of the business that you're bringing talented, diverse individuals forward. Um, all the way through their career, that you don't lose them when they hit their 30s. Um, and then lastly, it's the really basic stuff, um, like making sure that your pay scales are in fact equal and kind of trying to be transparent around things like um, the gender gap, if there is one in your office, and, and having a, an honest dialogue with your employees about this being an issue you're trying to address. Um, for me, as, a, as one of the senior management team. I've also made it part of my job, but I'm very well supported in that by my board and by, you know, the men and women I work alongside. So yeah. there's something about senior leaders also making sure they don't kick the chair away from other people coming up. No, absolutely. And I mean, looking at that and looking at your organisation, what what's Renewables UK got going forwards? What What's the plan to take this to to the next level, perhaps? How, how do you see this working out in the next sort of three to five years? Do you know what? The thing that I'm proudest of is that I can't fully answer that question because I have devolved responsibility for how our diversity work matures, develops, moves on to the team and to the people that work here because we want to co-own it in the business. So um, they have worked up a variety of really ambitious plans and... and Having got the switch list, they want to make sure that other organisations know that that is a tool for them to use and a resource available. So they're doing, they're planning some kind of marketing and pushing out to other conference organisers and sharing of that. The second thing is to look at additional tools. So when we set up the switch campaign, we were very clear that we wanted not to, this is not about Renewable UK. It's not a marketing exercise for us to look good, and, and we've got lots to fix ourselves. So we don't want to own this agenda. We want to help industry change. And so the idea was that we'd create tools and materials that could be accessed by lots of people and shared. And I think they're thinking about a series of webinars and maybe a digital platform for hosting kind of content and helpful advice that's right. really targeted on stuff like how to write a good CV at every level of your career, how to negotiate a pay rise, um, how to give a good presentation to really kind of focus stuff. Um, and then lastly, our own organisational practices um, we are keeping an eye on. So we already, for example, make diversity part of what we look at when we're choosing our board. Um, we're obviously... Yeah. A, trade body in those positions are elected so we have a limited control over that but we use our co-opted positions the way we ask companies to put names forward to think about diversity the senior management team there's a diversity requirement that we have always at least one woman on the senior management team um, when we recruit we ask our recruiters to look at diverse, um, diverse candidates so we get a, as big a pool as possible and we're going to try and step up on that um, a little bit. So we already offer things like flexible working and and other, you know, best in practice, organisational practices. But I think there's more we can do. But as I said at the beginning of this, 
I'm relying on the team here of all their different ages and backgrounds, the men and the women, to tell us what they think will make the business an attractive and equitable place to work going forward. Um, Great. You know, yeah. I mean, just on that note, ultimately, I always say that people always want to talk to me about diversity stuff, and I am so delighted that it's part of the conversation. But in some ways, I'm not the best person to ask the question of, because obviously, through a combination of luck and hard work, I've made it onto a senior management team, and I'm you know, a woman in the sector who's very visible. And I'm sure there are reasons for that that, I talk to in events and things and I'm, I'm happy to share, but I think it's really important that women in my position use their platforms to try to figure out how they got there to share those lessons and then to ask the 24-year-olds what we could do better for them yeah. so that they have an even easier experience. That's great. Well, Emma, thank you very much for your time today. And Matt, back to you in the studio. Thank you, James, and thank you to Emma. She's undoubtedly very busy with both International Women's Day and that new offshore sector deal, so we appreciate making the time for the chat. Uh, now, Emma mentioned something called the switch list once or twice throughout that interview. Uh, there is a link in the accompanying article to explain more about it, but we'll actually be speaking to one of the high-profile names on that list after the break, and I'll be back shortly. Yes, welcome back to the final part of today's episode. As mentioned, we're talking to a member of the Switchlist to finish off this podcast. Angela Terry is the founder of One Home Positive Solutions, the UK's first one-stop shop on climate action. Her name is well known in the sustainability sphere and she has appeared on a lot of radio and TV shows quite recently to discuss climate change, which is a sign that this is indeed becoming a mainstream matter. I actually spoke to Angela a few weeks ago following the publication of the Committee on Climate Change's report, which found that the UK housing stock is completely unfit for climate adaptation. As well as this, we also discussed the recent school children climate strikes and how sustainability professionals can take their expertise from their work life to create a low carbon and energy efficient home. Enjoy! Angela, thank you very much for the call. How, how are you today? Very good, thank you. Pleased to be speaking to you at last. <laughs> Great stuff. And I thought we would start with uh, just a, a bit of context. It's been quite um, a busy few weeks in terms of um, climate change, and certainly in the area where you are, you kind of have your expertise. Um, so I thought we'd start with the, the kind of Committee on Climate Change report that has come out recently. Um, basically, that the, um, the UK housing stock is, is kind of unfit for... Um, the the national low carbon transition and and, it, and kind of national legally binding climate targets. Um, as someone who's kind of put a lot of thought and effort into helping people become more sustainable in their households, have you had a chance to dissect that report? What are your thoughts on it? I have, and to be honest, that report says what I think most people knew was that the government walked away from energy efficiency. Uh, years ago and energy efficiency is the most sensible thing we can be doing to cut our carbon emissions and in our homes there's also lots of health impacts of not having healthy warm homes so so it's a double it's an environmental issue but it's also a health issue Um, and the most important thing is that since they scrapped zero carbon homes the, the bills have gone up probably about 200 pounds a year for families unnecessarily because if we build good quality homes in the first place, it's much cheaper than trying to retrofit them. So this is one of those examples of where a few people lobbied, it made a policy disappear that was so supported and so common sense. So I really welcome that report yesterday from the Climate Change Committee. What they said, which was most worrying, was that emissions from households went up 1% last year. And last year was actually, in terms of weather, quite a mild year in terms of a heating season. So the fact that emissions are going up in our homes during a fairly warm year is actually quite horrifying, given that we've known about climate change for 30 years. And the report seemed to place a lot of emphasis on on policies that can 
essentially alleviate or um, remedy some of these issues in terms of new builds, there, there wasn't as much focus, at least from my perspective, on the existing housing stock. They did kind of mention uh, how that insulation, um, etc., could help um, with that area. But, but in your opinion, is, is there something that can be introduced to, to help the existing housing stock? Yes, I think everyone has been saying for a while that the financial levers, such as a reduction in council tax bill, or what happens is when people buy a house, they tend to do the renovation, the bulk of the renovation work within the first few years after they move in. And we know that. And so giving a reduction in stamp duty for people who commit and go through with energy efficiency measures when you start renovating. So energy efficiency has never been a sexy subject, and it probably never will be. But home renovation is a huge industry, and everyone wants a warm, cozy home. So if we put financial um, incentives in there, either through stamp duty or council tax, and we start to put it as normal, and, and there's some great shops out there doing great work in this, like B&Q and IKEA, promoting sustainability all the time to their customers. So, so it's we know how to do this. They just just need to get on and start to do it. And that's probably across the whole board of uh, how we meet our climate targets. Is we know how to get there. We just haven't been given the priority to go ahead and do it. And uh, that's what's such a crying shame because all the benefits of doing these actions would pay for themselves within a couple of years. So it's not like it's expensive and you have to sacrifice. Insulation in your home is probably one of the cheapest things anyone can do. It makes your home more comfortable, but it saves you a fortune on energy bills. And what we all know is that energy bills increase every year. So the payback is very quick. It's interesting that you mentioned IKEA and, and, and uh, B&Q owned by Kingfish in that sense. So we, we actually spoke to IKEA on, on um, a podcast, uh, I think a couple of episodes now. They've opened their new UK sustainable store. I think they've also launched some kind of air purifying curtains, which seem really interesting. And as for Kingfisher, they've just had some science-based targets set. Um, I think one of them is a 40% reduction in emissions for the kind of... Um, uh, products and services itself, and a lot of them are aimed at households. Is this is this becoming a new kind of area, a new frontier for for especially consumer facing businesses that the products and services they sell have to be able to improve not just health and well being for the customers, but the, the the low carbon impacts as well. They are aware of the changes in our weather. You can't escape it. Uh, so the consciousness of global warming is there now. And secondly. Um, they want to do the right thing for the planet after David Attenborough's program and all the news reports about insects dying. So um, customers are saying very clearly they want corporations to help them do the right thing. And in terms of that, that general public aspect as well, the, the climate strikes from the school children have been one of the biggest stories of, of February um, and it's kind of painted climate change in a new light. Well, maybe not in a new light. It's kind of probably resurfaced um, a few perceptions we already had that perhaps the public don't trust politicians to um, really focus on this. You mentioned earlier about um, the lobbying to scrap the um, the, the zero carbon homes deal um, and, and whatnot. So has, has this kind of put a renewed focus on, on climate change, energy efficiency and just more sustainable lifestyles uh, in, in the public and in the households? The climate strike is wonderful. It is amazing. It is just what we needed because as us who've worked in this industry for decades, we're sort of a bit a bit weary. We've been doing it for so long and we've seen politicians ignore all the science and carry on with supporting uh, polluting fossil fuels. So the climate strike was started by one, she was 15 years old at the time. Mm. And it's now turned into a movement where this week my county council who is an extremely uh, conservative, I would say, council, voted for a climate emergency this week, and all parties supported that motion. That would never have happened even six months ago. I think the climate strikes have done something. They've cut through to the mainstream media, and it's made people aware that this is a generational issue, that we are leaving a legacy that is actually quite 
woeful at the moment and we need to start to pull our socks up and actually start to do what's needed to be done basically so stop talking about it and get on and do what's needed and um, obviously our audience um, is, is tailored toward businesses that are either starting to, to make that change or, or are the, the Ikeas, the Kingfishers that we mentioned that are kind of um, leading the charge. Um, and our audience is primarily kind of in-house sustainability professionals at, at these companies who, you know, they, they kind of scratch and claw for like tooth and nail to get sustainability to become a boardroom topic at a business to kind of spark holistic change. Um, and then they have to kind of go home um, to their families and, and so so how can they kind of go home and then essentially maybe have to have a similar type of conversation obviously less about the financials but try and essentially get um, some I mean I don't want to call family members stakeholders but people who are perhaps less um, aware less engaged on on this climate matter and get them to start implementing personal changes that will benefit the planet without it I suppose um, feeling like their work is invading on their private life. I think um, it's a really good question and it's something where it's like, do you live and breathe this or do you want to go home and switch off? The main thing I would say is that the benefits of doing the low carbon actions far outweigh any hassle or inconvenience. And so if you focus on on the benefits of it, that's where it's really... So there's a few things that are a top priority. One is electric cars. They are... Currently, about 98% of our cars are still petrol or diesel. But the air pollution issue is huge. And so it's about, so at work, it's very much about business, business development, customer focus, you know, profit. And, um, but at home, it's also far more about health. And air pollution is such a big issue. It's such a big worry for children in particular because they're so vulnerable. And so if we start to say electric vehicles are just better, if you drive one, all I say to people is just go and test drive one. Uh, They think they're more expensive. They're actually cheaper over the life cycle, and most people lease them anyway. So it's, it's really about trying, taking a step, seeing how it goes. And then the reason people are so passionate about electric vehicles is they're far better. So if you try them, then you'll never go back to a petrol or diesel car. So it's about trying them, basically. Um, insulating your home, I think I mentioned before, just it just saves you loads of money and it makes your house warmer and cosier. So it's almost a no-brainer, basically. Um, and um, the big sticky one is the holidays. And I get that, is the, the flights, the long-haul flights. But basically, if you avoid long-haul flights, you get two extra days of holiday. You won't catch a cold on the plane. And um, you just have a better experience. So, so there is being sold holidays as exhausting and fun. But actually, you're just stuck in a seat for 12 hours, if not more. It's actually not that enjoyable. So there's different ways to look at how you can change your lifestyle to reduce your carbon footprint, but also to have a better life. Okay, Andrew, that's some really great advice and insight um, there. So thank you so much for that. Um, we are a bit pressed for time, so I'm going to draw this um, interview for you close. But um, just before I go, is there, you know, what's, what's on the horizon for you over the next uh, couple of months? So um, engaging with the media a lot more. I get a lot of requests for um, just explaining this um, in normal language for people across all the media. And I think that's probably one... Uh, aspect that our sector could do more in. Like you mentioned, we're used to being at work and being the lone voice sort of pushing this, whereas actually we are pushing at an open door with the general public. So the more people that can become spokespeople and share our expertise and knowledge in our community, the better. So uh, I do a lot of work with the media because, A, the weather keeps being crazy, weird weather, and they want to understand why. And all this new technology needs explaining. Uh, So electric cars, people people even think you can't take them into a uh, car wash, uh, some surveys show. So it's about busting those myths and saying that renewables are actually cheaper, we can move away from fossil fuels, and getting that message out there as far and wide as possible, really. And to do that, we need... 
a good campaign and we need as many people behind us as possible. Well, here at ED, busting those myths is exactly what we've uh, been been doing for the last um, 20 years. So I'm, I'm sure we can uh, help you on that journey. But Angela, thank you, um, thank you so much for your time today. Brilliant. Thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed it. So a big thank you to Angela for that interview and, of course, all of our guests on today's podcast. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our sponsors, E.ON. Uh, But we are just about out of time for this week's episode. I'll be back again soon and hopefully I'll be joined by the rest of the team, which means you'll be properly introduced to James. Just a reminder that all of our podcast episodes are available via the ED website or can be listened to and downloaded from both iTunes and Spotify. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode on energy excellence, but for now, it's goodbye.